Welcome to season two of the Awkward Angler podcast. I'm your host, Erica Nelson. My pronouns are she and her. I am based in the ancestral lands of the Ute, currently known as Crested Butte, Colorado. This round of episodes, I'm connecting with folks in the fly fishing community that are taking actionable steps towards making the industry a more inclusive and equitable space. What is fly fishing for equity? And what are people, organizations, and brands doing about it? This show is for mature audiences. Would you rather strive to be an ally or an abolitionist? Abolition requires a commitment to risk, risking your comfort, safety, and status to ensure that your black and brown counterparts experience equity and its afforded benefits. Today, I'm sitting down with Andy Green, host of Wind Down with Fly Gals on Instagram. She is also a scientist, a self-proclaimed instigator, and abolitionist. We talk about her identity and how she is white passing, but also Mexican and her learnings from being complacent to becoming the abolitionist she now proclaims. We also discuss cultural appropriation. And it's kind of ironic that Andy was calling out cultural appropriation on the company Postfly for profiting off Sage in their Mother's Day box this year. Then she was called out on culturally appropriating an image she had on her screen while doing so. We talk about her learnings from this event and how to recover after appropriating other cultures. How can the industry learn how to recover when appropriation happens? And when we have such good intentions, however, those negatively impacted are long lasting. So I am a fly fisher um, and I'm a scientist. So kind of viewing myself holistically and where I occupy a little bit of space online is sharing some of that identity. And I like to call myself a little bit of an instigator. Um, I'm a baby anti-racist, so I'm learning. And I'm excited to be a part of these conversations and do a lot of soul searching on a personal level and then um, get involved with my community, which happens to be largely fly fishing. Awesome. Great. I love that you called yourself an instigator. What does that mean to you? Yeah, um, this is, I guess, a kind of a pick at my personality a little bit and the way that I know I am and um, I really strive to be. And that is just understanding and and kind of picking apart um, topics. So controversy. Mm. Uh, I'm not scared so much to talk about things like race and racism or um, diversity in STEM, so that's science, technology, engineering, and math. So again, these fields that I occupy or work and play in, I'm just excited to have conversation. And you know, your title is awkward angler, so I think that's great because it encompasses these conversations. They can be awkward. Um, I like that you said baby anti-racist. <laughs> uh, I actually to- just read that. I yeah, I am I picked up a copy of Bitch magazine, which is a feminist magazine, and I read this and I thought it was a great way to encompass someone who is learning and maybe doesn't know um, all of the pivotal people or the theory or hasn't studied it um, in the academic sense. So Actually, so now I'm curious, since you kind of said a, a word, uh, feminism, what does that mean to you? What does that look like? Oh, wow. So again, I'm a baby feminist in a lot of ways, too. So I, I show up to a space as a woman, and I identify in that way. 
my pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, and growing up, I was friends with a transgender person. And um, so my idea of womanhood and what feminism is and what it means has kind of blossomed now moving to a very progressive state like California, which is where um, I live today. I grew up in rural Virginia. Um, so feminism is just support um, where support is needed. So a lot of times people think of equal pay or, or equal access or equal resources. Um, but like, again, I'm going to quote Bitch Magazine. It's we're waiting for the time where we're not just preaching to the choir, where men can talk about feminism and um, and even going beyond the delineations of gender and just supporting people. Right. Yeah. That's one of the things that I would love to see more of in the industry is men talking about these subjects. You know, I've seen, you know, you, um, you know, speaking really boldly and, and loudly, right, about social justice and gender equity and racial justice. And, you know, I would love to see men actually having these conversations as well. Um, you know, where's the support for men of color? Where's the support for from all men, you know, when it comes to, um, you know, getting women in the water or just in society in general. <laughs> and so, I know that they say that they support it, but I would love to see more activism. So, yeah, I agree. And and one thing I want to note there is men carry a lot of authority. Um, and that's one thing that maybe some men don't realize. And still in the hierarchy, even a man of color can have a greater, um, greater authority than a woman. So, yeah, I'll definitely underline that one. I think um, we need to see our anglers out there and the men that we fish alongside or that really do support us being a little more vocal about it and kind of being on our side in regards to controversial topics or, or issues. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. So tell me more about your perspective and experiences on social justice within the fly fishing space. Yeah, um, so really my kind of COVID creative project was wind down with fly gals. And this just was a way for me to meet women. I never had a fly fishing friend that was a female. It was just my boyfriend at the time, now husband fishing together. And and then I, the world of Instagram opened up. And after graduate school, I was navigating unemployment and just thinking, okay, I want to hold on to community. What, how can I create that? And just this impromptu meet and greet with ladies, and I'm only scratching the surface. Um, Really, there are so many diverse women out there. Um, And talking about social justice issues and how it relates to fly fishing is just so um, pressing. And one thing I thought about a lot recently is this idea of abolition. And if I was a true abolitionist, I would want to abolish like fly fishing. I know that sounds intense, but the way that the face of fly fishing presents itself currently, now this is changing, right? We can talk about that. There's momentum. This conversation is happening. Is white men, heterosexual, cisgender, um, who are promoted on the front of magazines. It was a very big deal to have a black woman on the front of a magazine. Um, So... That was a Canadian magazine, right? And that's one of your friends, I believe. Yeah, Demisha Dennis. Yeah, that's right. 
her at Brown Girl Outdoor World. So um, those conversations, I think when we get ladies talking, because generally speaking, we're in the realm of feminism, right? And then if we're identified as not white, those kind of come naturally, I found. We're, we're kind of not just me the instigators, but I find a lot of women are. A lot of women want to have these conversations. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so that's actually the, the theme of the season's um, uh, podcast is, you know, Fly Fishing for Equity, who in the industries doing something about it, talking about it. And yeah, I like that, um, you know, that you call, you know, calling for abolitionism, I guess you could call it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I, I like that that's your, your stance. And I don't want to abolish fly fishing. I love it, right? That's not the point. We, we don't want to, if I was a true abolitionist, I would say, do away with it. It's doing more harm than good. We aren't being represented. Um, but I don't want that. Supporting folks like you, really, so women of color, and people I see myself in as a woman who ha- my grandmother is from Mexico, though thinking about my identity, I often am a little defensive because I'm not quite uh, Mexican. I'm only a quarter, uh, but I've just always been that way through childhood. So on the online space, I noticed that there's only a few of us really raising these red flags. So I want to just be the support and I don't, don't have a ton of followers. It's not my goal. I just feel, um, for the most part, safe in the community that we've kind of created and, and been a part of. Uh, but the times I don't feel safe, and I see that you are not safe, or others aren't, I want to come in and say, hey, let's, let's rework this, we, we can do a little better. Yeah, tell me more about your identity, because I know that you had talked a little bit about, um, I know that we've personally had a conversation about a little bit about that and, you know, hearing that your grandmother is Mexican. And um, so, yeah, how do you identify? Because me, like in society, right, in the U.S. in general, we like to categorize people consciously, unconsciously, whether it's by race, ethnicity, gender, um, et cetera, right? And as we continue to unpack race and identity, it's easy for us just to kind of see each other externally in our skin color. And, you know, to be transparent and honest, you know, when I look at you, I was I was like, oh, that's just a white woman in this space. <laughs> and so, but, you know, as we're starting to build community and get to know each other a little bit more, it's, it, you're not fully um, white, as I understand, but I would love mm-hmm. to kind of hear more about more that and in, in how you move about the world. <laughs> yeah. Um, so my grandmother immigrated from Mexico at a very young age, and she also married her husband, the love of her life at a young age of 18. Um, and from there on out, she became American in every way, shape or form. And one of the things that happened was a a loss of language. So, um, my mother and her five siblings didn't learn Spanish. Um, really my grandfather, when he came back from the Vietnam war and his first child was one and already speaking Spanish, he didn't like that. So my grandmother then redacted her, her language, not in, and that sounds very harsh and it kind of is. Um, but my grandmother very much embraces, um, her Mexicanness. And interestingly, after the loss of her son, she started really tapping into her identity. Um, that was kind of pushed aside for so many years. And, and again, after the loss of her child, she, 
It's like, what am I doing? I need to return to this. This is who I am. And was very bold in her Mexican, singing around the house, dancing around the house, talking in Spanish, cooking. And I was raised by her. My, my mother was in the military when I was very young. So I was raised by my two grandmothers in large part, one white and very Southern, one Mexican. Um, so, right, I don't look Mexican. And that's also interesting because impressions matter. So being a little bit curious about one another and racially sensitive, right? Just in case someone is white passing or has an interesting story to tell, maybe they're adopted and their culture is completely different than what they appear on the outside. Um, just offering that up, just the curiosity. Yeah, I love that. I always like to say lead with curiosity because we don't really know any anybody's stories, right? Especially just upon meeting them. And um, yeah, I can also relate to losing language, um, you know, due to colonization, right? And I'm indigenous and my tribe is Navajo. And, you know, there's a long history of um, boarding schools and assimilation and how, you know, we were forced to speak Navajo or forced to speak English, excuse me. And so, you know, there was a generation that skipped, um, whether that's my grandmother and my mother, right? My mother, actually, her first language was Navajo and um you know, was in a boarding school and, and had to speak English. And so she knows a little bit, but I definitely wasn't raised within the traditions or anything like that. So, um, you know, I think that's a, a little bit of a product of colonization <laughs> and white supremacy. Right. Yeah. And, and learning more about my family. And I think my grandmother's dive into that. And then, um, my tias, my, my aunts, um, I also have, background in Yaki, so Native American, and, and members of my family who were also in boarding school. So learning about that trauma and how it's um, still evident mm -hmm. in my family's mental health. And, and that was really a, a taboo and some, something that the other half of my family looked down on. Like, oh, you have problems. Like, you're not white and you got problems. That was too much for them. Um, yeah. So anyhow, it's, it matters. So I hope that in, in some way, shape or form, your family is able to um, have some retribution for that loss of language or, or culture. Yeah. So are you currently doing anything? I mean, do you have a practice that you do that's part of your ethnicity or Mexican um, heritage or anything like that? Um, moving forward or has that been a part of your life or what does that look like for you? Cause I guess for me, I um, was raised um, pretty much in, in white type of culture. I leaned mm -hmm. into it pretty, pretty heavily. And um, you know, over the last um, 12 years or so, I've just been really trying to unpack my culture and really get to know and, you know, learn a little bit more of the language and traditions and ceremony. And it's a process because it's not easy information for me to find online. And, you know, it never was a written language. So um, trying to find these things is really difficult. So are, do you find yourself in any path or any type of um, learning journey for yourself? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so one of my greatest joys is talking about my family. And one of the stereotypes of Mexicans is the big family. There's a lot. And I have six siblings, um, five of which are from my half Mexican mother. 
uh, six, including me. So I love talking and sharing about my family, um, but also just speaking to my grandmother. She's the elder. She's like kind of the, the queen, the matriarch of the family. Um, and just a week ago, I, I had this idea of writing to her because I, I feel like the because of the generational gap, talking to her on, on video or over the phone, I just want to sit beside her. That's one thing I really miss is just sitting and, and learning from her. So if I could have written record and retain some of um, what she's been through in her experience, that to me would be pretty great moving forward. Mm, yeah. And cooking. We, we do a lot of uh, cooking and eating and, and food and <laughs> socializing in that way. Yep. That's awesome. That's really awesome. And that you have that time and yeah, my grandparents are getting older and I just keep thinking about um, the things that aren't written down, right. And the stories that haven't been told and um, yeah. Yeah. So that's great that you're, you're doing that. I guess like talking more and diving into white passing, um, you know, what, I guess, what is your, your view of white passing or understanding um, through your lived experience, I guess, does that make sense? Like, you know, right. kind of hear more about what that's like. <laughs> yeah. So um, like you said, I grew up in a white culture um, dictated by white supremacy. And uh, I see kind of a, a lot of that in the way that now I'm trying to undo or, or, or unlearn or relearn. And I, I would, I've been protected. I have amnesty. The color of my skin makes me white. Um, so in that way, I've been protected and I've probably hid behind that um, in some instances. But I'd like to kind of be a little ferocious in that in a lot of instances, I haven't. And I'll just proclaim, you know, that's not right. <laughs> and that's kind of when my Mexican or the, the colored part of me comes out. Um, the brown part of me kind of comes out, but I don't feel different per se, really. Um, it, I feel very culturally in tune with my peers. Um, and maybe that's different because I am three quarters white. Um, yeah, I learning to undo some of it and again, be curious about others and, and others experience because I'm finding oftentimes that my my nature is to kind of go in and, and talk, talk, talk. So listening is something I'm trying to lean into. Mm -hmm. And like you mentioned before, allyship and, and what can I do to provide um, and share that amnesty that I have with others? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I've, I've seen white passing as an interesting topic because for it sounds almost deceiving or it can be right but at the same time I also see protection as well because I think that some folks that may be light-skinned um but are um, black or indigenous right um and it can it can lead to a lot right a discrimination or um violence and so hiding behind that white identity I've seen as as, as a protector um even in our history right um lighter-skinned black folks and in, in, in during the time of slavery and how that's actually saved them from slavery. Um, and at the same time, you know, there's the white passing where, um, you know, I was actually looking at um, a video earlier today of uh, white passing stories and how lighter skinned folks, um, you know, are hearing these, they're kind of in these groups of white people and 
um, just the things that white people say, <laughs> because they feel like there's no one of color in their in their circle. And, you know, it's an awkward situation um, to, put, to, be, to be in, I, I would imagine. <laughs> so I don't know if you've had any awkward situations like that. And, you know, and how you actually come out as an ally, right? Because um, it's really easy to hide behind identity, right? Um, but also, it sounds like you're um, trying to do some work within that space as well. Yeah, um, I would say when I was in junior high, it was really when I had this, I was at a crossroad. I could either continue on with um, rural, racist, white supremacist culture, which I was very much immersed in. And I uh, participated in. And that's something that um, I was encouraged to do. And that is what happened. So I was at this crossroads. And then I moved to Alabama. And then I just was around Black people. Not, it wasn't like my rural time. And I did lean on the fact of, okay, first of all, I can't be a white supremacist now. I can't be, you know, a racist uh, 12-year-old or 13-year-old now. And I had kind of this, I don't know, like my junior high identity crisis of what I need to make a choice here. And I chose for my, I really think for my nana, my, my grandmother. Why, why would I be racist and go around um, encouraging or acting that way? And that's when I then got on the other side and became an advocate. And still, it, within my family, I'm constantly having to correct and um, kind of be an advocate for people who aren't white. And that's something that is hard to do. Mm -hmm. And sure, it's tiring, but but. For me, it's like I, I can't always let things slip. And maybe that's a little bit of my problem and why I, I label myself as an instigator is it's not so easy for me to let um, racism slip. Mm -hmm. And whether in joke or in direct statement, especially, um, and I find myself doing that very often with close family or, right, strangers sometimes. I think you nailed it on the head by saying, oh, you look white, you're presumed white. Oh, I can say that racist thing in front of you. Mm -mm. Yeah. You, I mean, you do, but that doesn't mean you can get away with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So being an instigator, um, my uh, experience has been, um, you know, getting called out, right? And getting other people critiquing you because, mm -hmm. you know, um, I, I'm vocal about things that are just not socially just, you know, tell me maybe a more, um, have you had any experiences of getting called out or, you know, in this line of work and, and you know, particularly with your identity as well? And mm -hmm. what that looks like? Yeah. So most recently I was responding in the process to, in my uh, instigators sense of just who I am, of cultural appropriation within the fly fishing community. So this was a producer who, in that sense, I'm, I'm speaking in the sense of they make material goods for consumers. And this was an instance of cultural appropriation that I was led to on your page, which I always go to your page to kind of get my um, dose of, okay, I need to catch up. If I take like a week long stint, I'll go to Awkward Angler and I will just catch up. Yeah. And in doing that, and I, I'm getting on video because I'm riled up about this cultural appropriation, the use of a smudge stick and 
a fly fishing package. Oh, and post- right behind me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> On post flags. Yes. So, and behind me is my tapestry that I've had since I was 17 or 18. It's mandala. And a fly gal messages me and she says, Hey, like essentially, you're talking about cultural appropriation, and behind you, there's a mandala. And that's when I took a step back and go, You're right. You're right. And that's something that's been behind me and wind down with fly gals, and I have overlooked. Um, and often I, I find that instances of cultural appropriation are the oopsie. Mm-hmm. I did that. And now I have to figure out what it is and, and how do I fix it? And kind of being uh, DM'd and, and messaged, hey, that, that mandala behind you has cultural significance. And me responding, you are absolutely right. Because I do know better. I, although I consider myself a yogi, um, a lot of the Hindi culture or culture that uses mandalas at large, I'm not a part of. I'm detached from. That wall hanging was expired. You know, I, I got that as an undergraduate, a freshman. Um, so it was, it was interesting. I, I supported it because no one else had said anything. And I found also the irony of me in the video kind of calling out cultural appropriation and behind me, this white chick, right? There's a mandala behind her. What is she doing? That's like, uh, that's not okay. So I don't know. It was refreshing in a lot of senses and Mm -hmm. it was good. Yeah. So what is your definition or understanding of cultural appropriation within that, that work that you've been doing? Right. Um, So for me, And the way that I view and perceive cultural appropriation is just the misuse of a cultural item. And this has so many different definitions and um, it can be anything from uh, a style of dress to a physical object to something used in ritual being misused by the majority. Um, So in my instance, it would be a white girl going to undergrad, buying a tapestry from Urban Outfitters that, you know, was a mandala and significant to a culture I was not a part of. And in other instances in my life, I have done this. And this kind of brings up the conversation of the responsibility of the consumer and also the producer of goods and, and how we navigate that in capitalism and the exchange of money and goods and wait, we can't use cultures, um, for profit. So. I, um, I think where you got me was buying something from urban outfitters. (laughs) (laughs) Right. What would you see that, what would you say the difference is between appropriation and appreciation? That's something that I actually learned from you and you mentioning cultural appreciation. So that is new to me. And I'd like to actually kind of flip it a little bit and hear from you and your studies and and your experience, what that difference is, because I'm on the learning path and the unsure path. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Thanks. I appreciate the bounce back because um, I was actually in a conversation earlier today about this very, very exact topic, actually. And um, 
the approach of the work that I do, um, you know, in talking about cultural appropriation is there's no, in general, and uh, justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion work are, there is no, there are no rules. <laughs> there are only contexts and consequences. And so if we look at, um, uh, you know, a lot of folks come to me and, and approach, you know, where's the line? Like, what is appropriate? What's not appropriate? Just tell me what to do. And I am not an authority figure to tell anybody what to do. <laughs> I am not, you know, and when you look at justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, there is no right or wrong, right? It's just all about, about context. And are you willing to accept the consequences of your actions? Um, and so, you know, hearing your journey and your story of um, you're right, you know, how hard is that for us to say, right? And acknowledge that and, and do the work and dig in. And so um, the only line that I, I personally draw is if you're profiting off of a culture that's been um, um, historically marginalized or oppressed or continually being oppressed um, systemically. And so, you know, when you kind of look at it in that context and, you know, um, particularly with this instance, right, of, of SAGE and how uh, Native Americans and Indigenous folks could never practice uh, their religious or ceremonial um, ways until, well, until I believe the 70s. <laughs> so that was actually put into law um, not that long ago, right? And so, um, and then there's going to be a white-led organization coming in and profiting off of it, you know? And so then I kind of look at the appreciation side, which is, do I know the historical context of that, this item, right? Do I actually have a full understanding of one, where does it come from? There's actually, um, uh, you know, looking into harvesting it and the lack of abundance, you know, it is becoming endangered. And so how are you just going to put this in um, a very irrelevant place and profit off of it when there is a shortage, you know, at hand? Um, also looking at culturally and traditionally and spiritually, right, of selling it is actually a form of taboo. And so to kind of look at it in that context, right. But at the same time, um, if you are educating yourselves on these things and you have an understanding and you're continually um, educating yourself on this, I, I don't see anything wrong with appreciating one's culture, right. And then I've also ran into a lot of folks that have spent time with indigenous tribes and, and do collect and harvest sage in a very appropriate and traditional way where you're not just taking from the land, but they're giving back as well. And mm -hmm. so kind of more looking at it holistically versus just taking and, and um, not only profiting, but benefiting off of it is where I kind of see this, this balance, right? And it's not always, it's, it's also a gray area in and of itself as well. And so it, it's a tricky one. And I think that how are we going to move forward with the decisions that we make? Um, and again, are we willing to accept the consequences and, and be wrong, right? And be confronted and be able to respond appropriately and have a conversation and an educational um, perspective and viewpoint on it. So, um, so often we like to move around that I'm a good person, right? <laughs> I'm right. And yeah, <laughs> so not, being not me. Yeah, exactly. Not me. I'm not a racist, right? <laughs> <laughs> but just kind of how these things, um, yeah, play in and, and it, it gets complicated, right? And are we going to shut down? or Are we going to continue to to be in the conversation and, and be able to learn and grow from, from our mistakes is kind of where I like to look at that. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I do think that um, for, I can speak 
to it as a white person, as a white passing person, a lot of times we are caught up in the cultural appropriation yeah. and then we learn about it. So we do have to offer a bit of, okay, oops, let's move forward. Not, you know, the defense. I mean, it, it's for all of us that that triggers the defense mechanism, the, oh, I do appreciate this culture. Um, but I think there is a good point about the producer versus the consumer. If you are profiting off of appropriating a culture, um, especially in the instance of have has there been a resolution in this particular instance with post fly and we can actually make a like a resolution is possible. And that's the other thing that I want to underline and, and make clear is that resolution is possible. It's not just this. Um, you don't just hit a dead end when it comes to making a mistake or um, appropriating another's culture or making that racist joke. You don't just hit a dead end and you're now a racist. You can undo that. You can pedal backwards and actually choose to go, okay, let me make a mint. Let me learn. How did that offend you? How did that hurt you? I'm sorry. What can I do to um, not do that again, quite mm -hmm. frankly? Uh, and that's the type of accountability and ownership that I am very persistent on and, and kind of want for myself and for others. Um, yeah, I would say, I don't know if you have an understanding of the five stages of grief. I talked about this in the previous episode with Heather, uh, United Women on the Fly, and that's uh, been a solid foundation and a resource that has been helpful for her is understanding the five stages of grief, which is denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And so if you kind of look at the lens of this particular instance, an example with say post-life, right? they're totally in the denial stage, right? There's no acknowledgement. There's no anything, right? And typically when people are on an anti-racist journey, um, there's that, there's no racism exists, right? And we see that all the time. Right. We've been seeing it where Orvis had posted about signing the England for All Pledge, right? We see all of that in the commentary of, you know, why do you need to bring race into this? This doesn't, it's not relevant, right? And so that's that denial stage, right? But once we can kind of move on and accept that there's been harm, right? That racism does exist. There has been cultural appropriation in this instance. And, you know, there's an anger stage of whether that's with yourself, society, the person calling you out or calling you in, right? We just kind of get wrapped up in, in emotion of, of, being called out. And I don't know if that's been an experience for you of, of shock right? <laughs> and guilt, um, blame, shame, also kind of embarrassment, right? That kind of is like that whole stage that I see. And then we try to bargain, right? Of I'm that good person, right? I couldn't have done that. Or um, I've had this since I was a kid, or I can go to Whole Foods and buy a bundle of sage, right? You're trying to reconcile you're trying to bargain that your actions were were okay right and once we kind of move through that there is um, another emotional stage whether that's depression or or what that kind of looks like of wow I really caused harm right mm -hmm. you're kind of reflecting in that a little bit um, you know and then the acceptance stage is hard but I think that's where most people kind of find joy because then you're able to build community and again I love that you just said you know you're not just 
ending it there, right? You can backpedal, you can make amends, you can reconcile the situation. And so I always kind of, I don't believe in canceling. I don't know about you, but I always kind of leave mm-hmm. that door open for um, accountability, right? And that acceptance of, hey, finally, you made it through the old stages, right? Now we can build community. Now we can be in relationship. Um, and now we can move forward together. So growing up in a very rural, white, racist culture, I had to make a choice. Um, but I was in denial first. And now as an adult, looking back at the harm that I have done to friends, one of my very best friends, first best friends was black and thinking how I'm sure she saw me transform into this, you know, racist, preteen, confused with my, where do I stand here? Um, I was just, it it was complex um, from my point of view, half of my family was white, half of my family wasn't. And it was like this war almost who's going to win who's going to win and I had to make that choice and now I think I have a lot of guilt about that time in my life where I did feel like I was being um racist and succumbing to that just the environment that I was in but uh, I'm so happy to be out of that and be willing to talk about it it's very hard to admit to being racist And that's one thing now in the acceptance phase and talking publicly about my racism um, and these inherent biases or things I'm still working out that I still have to mentally take note of and try to undo. Even if it's not coming out of my mouth, the fact that uh, it's happening in here, I need to fix that and kind of nip it in the bud. I'm giving yourself a lot of grace. And again, Denial, it doesn't have to end there, though it seems sometimes to get hung up there in the denial. We're so ready. Okay, please just see this. Come on. We'll do it together. We're here for you, but we can't uh, facilitate your behavior. That's where I think calling out and being an ally, uh, I'm going to be direct with you. I'm not going to facilitate you. So we have to move outside of that denial. And we all fall into it, I think. Um, Even among non-white black and brown communities and how there's implicit bias about everyone. This white supremacist culture has just pinned us up against each other. Mm-hmm. It hasn't really made it friendly uh, to bridge, bridge the gap. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've seen uh, folks of color, uh, you know, black indigenous people of color, Asian American identities that um, also embrace white supremacy characteristics in that culture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not... Um, it's not, I'm not saying it's terrible or bad inherently. It's just the way that it is, right? It's a fact that uh, we also can embrace uh, white supremacy characteristics, which does put ourselves against each other oftentimes, right? Um, And I also like that you said, you know, giving yourself grace, because I think that's really difficult for us. We can be really hard on ourselves or um, giving ourselves too much grace as well, right? Where we become Mm -hmm. (laughs) self-righteous. So I think that there's a balance to be had of not, playing into that pitfall of emotion, guilt, or shame, or whatnot. And then there's also that self-righteousness that um, we can balance. <laughs> so, And I think naturally, people don't want to be in turmoil, that we can mend things. Um, I think it's very uh, uncomfortable. You know, it's just, you got that feeling in your body that just isn't right, whether you get it in your stomach or your muscles tense up. Um, we want to be in harmony with each other. And that's what I think is most challenging about 
white supremacy is that it goes against our human instincts. It goes against our humanity, our um, need for community, our need for trust among humans, among our people. We are just one. And that's this system that capitalism supports, whether it be through urban outfitters selling uh, mandala tapestry or post flies, smudge stick in a box. It isn't really meaning harm, but it does. It, it does cause harm. Um, we don't need to be up against each other. We're uh, head to head. No, we, we work best together and we can mend things. It's not impossible. So for me, it's like, yes, that was hard. Yes, that was, confrontation isn't easy. Um, but generally speaking, we can get through it. Yeah. I believe in us. Yes. Let's do this. <laughs> Let's move on. Let's be friends now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I like the language that you use when I hear you talking about your you know, your own internalized racism or racism in general. And, you know, I think we, we skirt around from being labeled as racist, right? Mm -hmm. Um, However, the actions that we do can be racist, right? And so whenever we kind of reject a title, right? I'm not a white supremacist. I'm not a racist. Then we don't really, we can't, it's like naming it to change it. And we're so afraid to name it. Um, and especially um, possibly embody some of these characteristics. And I can always tell um, in conversation where folks are at when they can kind of identify that in themselves and not be so hard on themselves, but understand that that is a product of their background, right? The way that that they've been raised, their biases, right? And it's just being um, confronting that and kind of being upfront and honest about it versus that denial stage, right? (laughs) Where I kind of see folks moving along in that acceptance stage and having them, that grace for, for themselves, right? And not um, not just kind of shutting down, right? And so, you know, the person that, um, you know, Brian that runs Postfly, I see that total denial, right? I'm gonna totally, like, I'm just leaning more into white supremacy because they're not willing to um, build community, right? Or acknowledge that they've caused harm. Right, right. Um, for me, I would say kind of my manifesto and my, what I needed to get off my chest um, for years was this post that I wrote. And for me, I, I feel very empowered in writing. And when I shared this to Instagram, and this was, of course, in the era of George Floyd, um, and for years, I had been thinking on this. And this event happened in middle school, where I was openly racist to a black friend. And I talk about this in my Instagram posts. And the reason I even posted it wasn't because I felt good about it. I'm ashamed. I am so ashamed that I could have been racist and was racist and caused harm, but I needed to make amends. And in doing that through writing and calling myself racist, really naming it for what it was, um, that healed me. Now posting that to the world, Oh my gosh, I was shaking. I was crying. I was feeling every emotion because it hurt someone. And the, the feeling that I, that I hurt a group of friends in middle school, it wasn't just like, oh, I didn't know this black girl or these black people. They were actually my friends. And I used the word that white people have used against black people as a 13 year old. That is shameful. That is embarrassing. That is. Is, but I, I needed to make amends. 
And in doing that and in calling that action racist and calling myself racist in that moment and writing about it, um, it really wasn't even for me because it felt kind of horrible. <laughs> but in a way, uh, it was like, now I can move forward. That had been on me for a long time, that I had har directly harmed someone. You don't have to speak openly like I did. I needed to. Um, I needed to do that. I needed to write. That was my calling in that moment. But identifying those wrongs, maybe as a white person that we've done in the fly fishing community or outside of it. Um, but really, the fly fishing community is racist as hell. <laughs> I mean, come on, we need to identify that too. And then moving forward. Uh, but that was very hard. Oh my gosh, that was very hard for me to go, wow, I was a racist. That's, I got to own that. Anyhow, every person's journey is different. I just think that little voice inside of her head that feels guilty or sh ashamed, it's okay. Um, now, let's just take accountability. Let's, let's move forward. Yeah. Yeah, I often um, work with folks where, you know, especially with microaggressions and cultural appropriation, we don't fully know in the moment, but something feels off, right? Something just doesn't feel right. And I got a lot of uh, messages of, um, you know, once I posted about post-fly, they're saying, you know, something was off and I don't know exactly what it is. And that feeling happens a lot. And I think that's also when we're dealing with microaggressions and racial actions, racist actions. And so there's these awkward moments and we don't really quite know what to do in the moment. And then it feels awkward to go back am I bringing old shit up right am I right is it weird to like go back to that conversation that was awkward right but it was just so awkward at the time that if I bring it up again then it's like all this stuff just kind of rushes into like you know those physiological responses right where you're feeling this pit in your stomach you're starting to shake right and so we just avoid it completely and let it go for years I had felt dirty by the racism of my environment the home I was growing up in, the things that were being said, I was always this little advocate, wait, wait, but my Mexican family isn't so bad. Wait, why are we? Um, so for me, in effect, writing was directly to the girl, my 13 year old self had hurt. And I directed it to her and I, you know, apologizing, saying you're sorry, making amends, even if I get nothing back, it's there. I have caused you harm and I'm, I'm, I'm willing to fix it years later. Um, but I think that's really hard. We, as, as a community, we haven't really developed that language on, oh, I did this really racist thing and we got past it, that things haven't been the same, like in your um, instance. And then you get an apology and then it's like, wow, all of that is washed away. I like that. It's, it's washed away. I feel better. Um, we can move forward. Say sorry to make amends. It's never too late. It isn't. Um, forgiveness is one of the beautiful, beautiful things that happen. And when it does, um, it's, it's really something. So. Yeah. And I would also add on to that, not just an apology, right, but action. You know, post fly had apologized, but you know, I want to see some action, right? I want to see some um, reconciliation, right? And what are you going to do to make this better, right? So I'm past the apology stage, you know, in a sense, and would love to see more more action. And 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 what are you going to do about it, right? <laughs>
Um, so, and what does that look like for one that maybe is dealing with this? Maybe they've apologized. What does that action look like? How can we show up if we aren't in physical presence of one another? We're online. We're online. We're in this virtual community. But I feel like I know you, Erica, for instance. And how do we go about that? Like, what does that action look like? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there was most recently where uh, it was, I believe, Trail Runner magazine had post had made a post, uh, an article that was talking about one of the first pioneer trailblazer runners, and they were a white person, <laughs> whereas running has been a cultural significance in, in indigenous communities and how much there are folks in our traditions still carrying on that, that, um, that ritual and that, um, you know, fine running um, spiritual. And so, um, you know, they were called out on that. And, you know, what they did was they had a post of, we apologize, you know, followed by action steps, which means we are going to invest in resources to educate ourselves, right? We're going to look at, where we're going to put our money where our mouth is, right? We're actually allocating resources to our own education and supporting the thing that we mess up on, right? And so, you know, some of my call to action and some suggestions that I had offered was, you know, give profits that you're making off of this to Indigenous communities. Um, what does that look like, right? I like that. Yeah. I remember reading that and going, I, I mean, your suggestions and others, uh, I thought they were great. I would have taken, that's doing the homework for you. You're welcome. <laughs> you just did their homework for them. And now all they have to do is say, did it, it's done. Yeah. And thank you for being bold enough to, to me. I feel oftentimes, how do I call out without skirting around and feeling the tone of the conversation? What What's appropriate here? And this is a platform. This, your podcast is a space to do this in real time. But it's not just gonna uh, sit and stagnate. Years, days are gonna, time's gonna pass and things can change. So I like that um, you're very centered in that. Like we can move and evolve forward. We can get through this. And you're offering up some really great uh, action items. I mean, it's always a great area, right? And so um, how are we willing to be brave enough to step into the conversation versus just run from it? And I think running is what we've systemically seen <laughs> is, you know, these uncomfortable topics, conversations, and just let that consume, um, consume ourselves in our society. And that is a product of white supremacy, right? That is what we're continuing to live in. And white supremacy will perpetuate the more and more that we don't talk about it, the more and more that we push it underneath the rug. And so the more and more that I don't hear from Brian, right, every single day, it's just perpetuating white supremacy. And that is, you know, that is the history of systemic racism. And, you know, it's just continuing on the more and more that they're silent. So, you know, again, that's when I don't know if you've heard the term silence is violence you know, that can just shut down a person, right? Of, hey, I'm already doing it wrong. So I'm just going to continue living my life and continuing to be silent because I've been okay so far, <laughs> you know? And so, right. um, you know, that was a, a good experience for, for me um, is just to hear and listen and, and lead with that compassion. And so um, whenever we're hit hard in a negative way, we typically dig in our heels of uh, being complacent is something that I've seen. So. Yeah, yeah. And Cheyenne was probably the first fly fisher that I followed who was a woman. So mm -hmm. to me, she was 
and still in many ways that hasn't stopped an idol to me. And um, yeah, complacency, oh, it bites us in the butt. It, it really does. And, and not responding to uh, very pressing, present, relevant issues like race and racism. Um, yeah, it, it, can be, it can be tough. And having the influence and how do we use that? How do we go about um, navigating someone like Andy going, hey, let's have a bigger conversation. Uh, you kind of cut me off that, that time and I, I want to have it. But yeah, certainly leading with um, less judgment on, on my half and, and more empathy. And I do want to resolve this and really it's it's less of a it, it feels personal but it's more of the influence is there you have the influence what are you going to do about it um how are you going to respond to our community who is i don't know it's almost like endemically white <laughs> like that's um and not just kind of buckle to your followers and I, that's yeah. Who, who's your demo? Who are, who, who are you talking to? What are, what do you, what do your demographics look like? And how can you change that? Cause that's one thing that when I first started posting about fly fishing, I was just getting fly bros. My demographics were fly bros. And now that has changed because I have, um, wanted that change and I've kind of, uh, promoted that through the folks that I interact with and I follow. I see, you know, we all have our own platform, right? We're able to do whatever the fuck we want with our own platform. We can say whatever the hell we want, right? Right. And that's what I love, right? About being awkward is because I can say what I want because it's mine, right? And I think we kind of get caught up in that. And when we look at influencer culture and um, particularly if we're sponsored, right, by certain brands and ads, we then become a product of capitalism, right? We're, yes, then, yes. we're no, then that voice is kind of stripped away of saying whatever the hell we want, right? We're no longer able to be ourselves because now we are a product of products, right? And that's, that's part of the system, right? That is. And that's one thing that I'm detached from. That's mm -hmm. one thing that I don't, and I do admire from female guides. They're putting in the work. This is their business. This is their career. And also uh, ads generate money. Yeah. Um, so that's a, a form of livelihood and a form of income. Mm -hmm. And no disrespect to that. Um, we've just got to make sure it's not, it's in the right direction. It, it, it supports not just the white person. Right. You know, there's a lot of discussion. I mean, it's just kind of that, you know, distinguishing the influencer culture and you know, authenticity, I think is really interesting to kind of look at. And so I don't see influencers as being fully authentic, right? As much as we want to say that we, we know them, <laughs> right? We actually don't. And, you know, so what are our own personal expectations that we have of them is something to really um, consider, I would say. And so whenever that is stripped away, right, when you are susceptible to influencer culture and, and trying to make rent, right? <laughs> you can't. And so, you know, you are these 
ad, you're a walking ad essentially, right? And so the expectations kind of lower for me a little bit, I guess, just because they're trying to uh, make make their way through life. And again, no judgment. It's just kind of my own personal observation of of how I, I kind of look at that a little bit. <laughs> right, right. And then we feel like we know them. And then there also is this toxic, toxic thing that happens or can happen where um, we will attack anyone who goes against our favorite influencer. Mm-hmm. And you kind of become this like cult following to said influencers. Yeah. And um, without realizing it, oh gosh, I could go on and on about the damage of these algorithms and what this is doing to our, how we communicate with folks. Yeah, I mean, so for looking at influencers and that culture and looking at products of ad space and, and capitalism, you know, what are your thoughts about companies getting involved with racial and social justice? It's a necessity. It's, um, I think if you're going to sell a product and if you're going to put your name stamped on something, um, it can't just be for and represent one culture, one point of view, which is white and always has been. We need something more. Uh, I think consumers are really wanting that something more. We're wanting more and we're demanding more out of um, whether it be a small business or a very large um, business. So that type of uh, involvement, um, it starts with the employees that you hire. How, how can your company or organization um, be more diverse in, in that realm? And then what's going to happen as a natural consequence is that your products will be more um, informed culturally, uh, more racially sensitive. Um, and I think what what happens is our leadership is so white and male. See this in um, both of the worlds that I navigate, fly fishing, science. Um, so we need to fix that leadership. And I think the in-between kind of follows and is natural, the, that follows suit. When you have a more diverse perspective. Now getting there, um, we have, to have these conversations and then we have to really promote and push for um, hiring on and bringing on and respecting uh, voices of others, of uh, black and brown people. Um, that's, yeah. that's it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of power in the dollar and how we spend it as consumers. And I wish that, um, yeah, we were to kind of think more consciously about that and who we give our money to. And so, yeah. And I also would agree about, you know, who, who you're hiring, right. And who companies are hiring. And I would kind of add on to that and kind of point at the person at the top, right. What does that leadership look like? What is that CEO's perspective? Because that all trickles down, right. I think that company culture really reflects the, the person at the top and the board or whoever it is at the top. And so I don't think that we can just start um, expecting employees that work for a racist boss, <laughs> right? To, mm-hmm. Right, to right. Board. So yeah, I would always say it starts at the top and, and that leadership and, and their own perspective <laughs> on um, racial and social justice. And where we spend our money too. And we're, we're, we need uh, an item for fly fishing. What do we want to um, go to a big brand or can we see if Etsy has it? If some small uh, shop 
then maybe that has more diversity. Or can we reach out and ask others for resources? Hey, I'm looking for this product. Can you lead me to or help me find um, just a difference? Like, I just want something different um, than what I've been buying or what I've been purchasing or who I've been communicating with in in this world. Yeah, I want something different. I think people are, are wanting that. We want some, not just white. Yeah. Yeah, or just male, or just uh, heterosexual. Like you can add on and add on there. Oh, huge! Absolutely. Yep, I totally agree. <laughs> All right, so switching gears as we're kind of wrapping up our session. Um, so tell me more about your fishing style, and what does the best day on the water look like to you? <laughs> okay, my fishing style is small native stream. So we're talking. Um, deep in the woods, tributaries, we're climbing up them. I like to say that I only hike for fish. Um, my husband and I, we only hike for fish. So we are just going on a dry fly. And really those native trout are typically so hungry that it's a lot of action. Um, but the fish are big. So for me, fly fishing native streams is what I learned on and what I love most. Um, and that would be my perfect day on the water. Would It would be a, a good lunch packed in our, in our bag. Um, my husband and I, or a fly gal, now that I'm immersing myself in having fly gal friends, <laughs> um, you know, hiking up, whether it be an alpine lake, I would take that. I'm most familiar with moving water and just, uh, hooking into a couple of beautiful native trout. I recently caught uh, my first golden trout here in California. So that was exciting. And just appreciating the trout and their um, inherent rise for the fly. That's like the, the best behavior by far, in my opinion, that a trout can do. And they rise and eat that fly on top water. Yeah. Even if it's like three inches, starting Sunday, whatever. If I get a rise out of a trout, I'm like, yes. <laughs> so what's next for you as far as, you know, life or personal, professional, like, what are you working on? What do you got going on? <laughs> yeah. Um, so in my baby anti-racism journey reading, um, in my baby anti, or uh, my baby feminist journey reading, um, for me, I consume material best through written words. And also I heal or I work things out through writing. Um, so reading and writing, that's kind of my form of intake. And I think that's why I love Instagram so much. Um, a lot of people will take the writing, you know, it's the visual format there and just building community. Now that I'm vaccinated, uh, um, I'm so excited to meet some of the gals I've connected with on Wind Down with Fly Gals. Um, now that I and working full time, that will take the back burner a little bit. Um, so I'm just excited to get out there. Now, I like COVID seems a little bit like in the rearview mirror. It's still here. And, you know, California is just now starting to open up, really. Uh, but I want to hit the water and fish with women, fish with just people I haven't fished with before. So that's that's it for me. That's great. That sounds like a wonderful plan. <laughs> so how can people get connected with you? Um, how can people find you? 
You can find me on Instagram. So at andy.green, A-N-D-I dot G-R-E-E-N-E and message me. I am in Central Coastal California. I'm just now getting into surf fly fishing, um, but I would be happy to take you to a mountain stream. And I'm just excited to share fly fishing, whether it be in a teaching sense or whether it be in let's just go and try, try to get a bass. That, it doesn't matter to me. I, it's just, it's fun. And I'm super enthusiastic about meeting other women. So if you're in the area, if you want a road trip, send me a message. I would be more than happy to. I love road trips. I'm all ears. <laughs> One of the last things that I do want to note um, for folks wanting to build community, and I touched on it earlier, pay attention to your demographic. And that just means who are you following? Who's following you? If you want to get away from the fly bro scene, do it. You can click unfollow. Hashtag. That is like, oh my gosh, just look for fly gals. So anyway, um, that has been for me super enriching. Um, finding, they're out there. Women, they're, they're out there. Um, so thank you. This has been great. Oh my gosh. It's so nice to talk to you and connect again. And I hope we can fish together one day in the near future. Oh, absolutely. Definitely is going to happen. <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's episode. Head over to awkwardangler.com for show notes and resources. You can send appreciations by subscribing, sharing with a friend, rating the podcast, or Venmo at Awkward Angler. Special thanks to my Brown Folks Fishing family for your support. I'm Erica Nelson, inviting you to be an awkward angler. See you next week.